Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of Leadership Organizations in the House of Representatives, Party Participation and Partisan Politics. The book is published as a part of the Legislative Politics and Policymaking series by University of Michigan Press. Scott Menke, how are you doing today? I'm doing Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of Leadership Organizations in the House of Representatives, Party Participation and Partisan Politics. The book is published as a part of the Legislative Politics and Policymaking series by University of Michigan Press. Scott Menke, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Did I? And I, I mispronounced your name after we had that long conversation. <laughs> it's Scott Menk. That's correct. Good. Scott. After that that brief mistake, um, tell me about yourself. Tell us all about uh, where you are now before we get to talking about your interesting book. Sure, and, and thanks for having me with you today, uh, Heath. I've been looking forward to this. Um, I am an associate professor of political science at Bucknell University, which is in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, my PhD is from Ohio State, and uh, the published work that I've done before the book project has been focused primarily on Congress. I've done some work on congressional representation and uh, and the electoral connection, uh, as well as some work on congressional parties and congressional history. Uh, so Congress has been my main focus, although I've done some collaborative work on uh, presidential selection processes and on the Supreme Court as well. At Bucknell, I'm sort of the uh, all three institutions uh, Americanist, and so I've done a little bit of research in, in all three areas. Uh, but uh, for the last five or six years, most of my attention has been on things related to this book project. Well, it sounds, I imagine, familiar to a lot of people listening about wearing those multiple institutional hats. Uh, this book is about Congress, and your subtitle has lots of peaks, <laughs> party, participation, partisan, and politics, but no policy. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about what a congressional uh, uh, party committee or a policy committee is? Um, that 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 P that that's not in the title, but is is relevant here. Um, and and what this has to do with a, a whip organization? Just sort of maybe you can define some of the terms before we talking uh, start talking about this. Sure. So each of the the parties in the House of Representatives, the Republican Conference and the Democratic Caucus, um, has. Uh, has in addition to its top elected leadership, uh, the speaker, the majority leader, the minority leader, um, has a set of party committees and party organizations that help, uh, help with the day-to-day operation of the parties. Um, and each of those organizations involves many members, many rank and file members of the party, um, in, again, the day-to-day operation of the party. Uh, in each party, you have whip organizations. Uh, which are are led by the majority and by the minority whip and by a few chief deputies. Uh, but each uh, the Republican Democratic uh, the Republican whip organization and the Democratic whip organization involves dozens of appointed whips that uh, that help to collect information and disseminate information through the through the uh, co- uh, conference or the caucus. 
Um, on the Democratic side, there is a Democratic Steering and Policy Committee, which has existed since the mid-1970s, and it has the standing committee assignment function for the party, uh, but also at times has been an important center for deliberation and coordination within the Democratic caucus. Um, the Republicans have a steering committee that houses the committee assignment, the standing committee assignment function for the Republicans. Um, they also have a policy committee that um, has at times uh, had an important role in uh, distributing information and in coordinating in the short term on policy initiatives. Uh, there have been some other um, other organizations that I talk about a little bit in the book, the Republican Research Committee, which existed until the 1990s. Um, and there are also other other organizations that are important, like the Congressional Campaign Committees uh, that I've, I've set aside for the book uh, because they operate uh, in, uh, in a different way than than those other organizations that I just mentioned that are the main focus. Now, why it seems on the one hand kind of obvious, but why would a member uh, like to be on one of those committees? And uh, why would House leaders want to invite more members to join them? That's a great question, right? I, I the, the focus of the book is sort of how uh, how the the collective party interests that the leadership is trying to pursue intersect with the individual goals of members who are participating. From the perspective of the the top leadership, um, ever since the the 1970s, the the parties have the party leadership has seen an interest in having rank and file members involved. Right, it allows the the top leadership to more effectively. Um, carry out the coordination tasks that the party has to has to carry out uh, the the exchange of information and and uh, uh, getting on the same page strategically that uh, that the leadership needs for uh, for either party to function. Uh, it allows uh, a, a better and and more cohesive uh, persuasive process, particularly within the WIP organization. Um, and it has come to have an important role for the top leadership in facilitating external communication, um, both to the the party's re-election constituency outside of the House and a and sort of a two-way flow of communication between um, members of the House party and uh, external party actors. Um, so from the top leadership's perspective, all of these things are, are benefits that, that allow the, the top leadership to carry out its difficult tasks uh, more easily. From the perspective of individual members, those who decide to, to participate and who are invited to participate um, gain in a number of different ways, right? Um, those who have an interest in policy from the perspective of their individual goals um, have the opportunity to pick up information about policy and be involved um, in the increasingly important uh, party process, uh, party portion of the policy process, right? More peace. Um, they, uh, they benefit in advancing on the career ladder. I show some evidence in the book that uh, that most of the uh, most of the members who step into a top elected position do so from uh, from a post uh, an appointed post in the extended leadership. They benefit also from a constituency perspective, and I show uh, some qualitative evidence and a little bit of quantitative evidence in the book uh, to to demonstrate that some members choose to make their involvement in the party part of their home style, part of how they present themselves to the constituency. Um, and uh, and so this this connection and this participation in the party becomes part of how they show themselves, uh, particularly for those members who are from more partisan districts, uh, to be to be a good uh, a good Republican or a good Democrat. Um, and finally, they they get some benefits that the party uh, is able to distribute. I show that even when we control for other factors that influence standing committee assignments, that those members who are involved in the party extended leadership uh, do better in um, in advancing. Uh, in prestige committees. 
within the house. Uh, so, so there's individual member benefits and, uh, and there are great benefits to the top leadership in, uh, in trying to carry out its, its challenging tasks. Now, much of your book is about the difference between how these organizations were used in the past versus more recently. Uh, what is the time period that you study and, and is there a dividing line between the past and present? Uh, when do we see the change that you study starting to happen? So the time period, uh, for the book starts around the mid 1970s, starts in the immediate uh, post-reform era, um, and the the research extends into the into the mid mid to late 2000s. Um, and I argue overall in the book that in the late 1970s and early 1980s, as these organizations came into their modern form, especially in the majority Democratic caucus, um, that the organizations were used um, in a more in a more open uh, in a more open way uh, to try to facilitate very broad participation. This is a, at a time in the late 70s and into the 1980s when uh, when the, the Democratic caucus was pretty diverse, but uh, conditional party government conditions were strengthening and there was greater demand for centralized party leadership. And so as the leadership's trying to meet those demands, despite a diverse caucus, um, it found that it was very useful to bring members into organizations like the Democratic Steering and Policy Committee and use that as a place for uh, discussing policy and strategy, and then uh, also to use the WIP organization in a way to bring uh, a very diverse set of members into the process to allow the leadership to gather information and to, and to, uh, and to, connect, uh, to connect better with the different corners uh, of the Democratic Party. Um, this is a, a story that is uh, familiar uh, to some congressional scholars, I imagine, because it's it's a story that David Rohde and Barbara Sinclair have told in uh, in some form in their studies of that time period. And my archival work um, on the Democratic organizations in that time period uh, shows shows something similar. But I also found that the same thing was true for Republicans um, in the minority in the 1980s. Uh, that especially the Republican Policy Committee was used to try to bring a lot of different Republicans to the table um, to consider uh, to consider policy in the short term and to to try to reach uh, some some consensus about uh, about policy that the that the party wanted to put forward and some and uh, some strategic coordination as well. The Republicans were sort of intermittent in their use of um, of the Policy Committee during that time, but you you saw again this kind of inclusive a- approach. You asked, you sort of, is there a dividing line? Do we see where this changes? And I argue in the book, you sort of have this first stage in the late 70s and in, into the 1980s where party government conditions are strengthening. The party organizations are becoming more important to both um, the Republicans and the Democrats. But those organizations are being used in this more open and, in, and inclusive way. I think as party government conditions become even stronger into the late 1980s and the early 1990s, and as especially as electoral competition heats up uh, around the 104th Congress and after, that that's a, a point in time where we see a real change. Um, we see that the organizations that were responsible for persuasion and coordination, um, the WIP organizations and the policy committees, um, become less representative of the full range of views in the party. They, uh, they have become dominated by loyalists. This is particularly true of the WIP organizations, uh, also of the Republican Policy Committee. Um, it, it, it does not, it, it's not that the, the party organizations, uh, then sort of fall into disuse, but that they are more tightly controlled. Uh, the WIP organization is used, uh, for persuasion and coordination and, and is more, uh, tightly under the, uh, the control of loyalists. And then 
the top leaders use the other organizations that remain uh, not so much as forums for deliberation, but for information sharing with party actors outside of Congress uh, and for transmitting partisan messages. And so these institutions become adapted to a changing political climate starting in the late 80s and the, the early 1990s. Now, you had the enviable task of combing through the archives of some real congressional legends, both both Republicans and Democrats. Whose archives did you examine and and where were some of the places you got to go to to collect this data? This was a lot of fun. Uh, Up until working on this book, uh, I've been mostly a number cruncher as a congressional scholar, and there is some number crunching uh, in the book, but but a lot of it is based on archival work. And uh, and the, the the bulk of the information on uh, on the Democratic Party came from the uh, the Foley papers, uh, which are located uh, at uh, Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, um, and from the Tip O'Neill papers, uh, which are in Boston. Um, I spent a lot of time with both of those sets of papers, um, in part because they span uh, most of this time period. Um, and because both of those leaders were very good about uh, retaining a lot of a, a lot of the documents about what these organizations were doing, um, I, I looked at, at some other Democratic papers, including the the Bonnier papers, which are at uh, Wayne State University in Michigan. Uh, David Bonnier was nice enough to let me take a look at those papers before they were open to the public, um, and I got some information from the Gephardt papers and the Wright papers as well. Um, but O'Neill. Foley and uh, and Bonnier were the the, the main sources. Um, on the Republican side, Bob Michael's papers, which are at the Dirksen Center in in Illinois, um, was the main so those were the main source for uh, for the Republican side because he too had kept a great deal of information about the Republican organization. He had been involved, uh, you know, way back into the into the 1960s and and uh, and up into the 1990s. Um, he had a lot of staff files that were helpful. Uh, files about uh, what the policy committees were doing and, and the uh, and the steering committee. Um, I spent some time um, at, in Norman, Oklahoma, looking at at uh, at some of the papers uh, there, and uh, and I was able to look at um, Mickey Edwards' papers. He was a, a Republican leader who was involved in the research committee and the policy committee. Uh, Dick Armey's papers there were also helpful. Um, so. As you said, a lot of big names, a lot of legends. Um, but I should also mention that some of the things that I found that were the, the most interesting uh, and sometimes the most unexpected were in papers of members who are a little bit more obscure or who you don't associate as much with the party leadership. Uh, I went on something of a whim to Bud Schuster's papers in Pennsylvania uh, and found great information on the Republican Policy Committee in the 1970s and 1980s and, and learned some things that I just didn't had did not know about what the policy committee was doing. Uh, again, Mickey Edwards, who was not a, a, a very high profile leader um, in the 1980s, had had uh, great information as well. Uh, so this was a lot of fun. And and what did you find? Um, what did the archival research tell you that a quantitative study, uh, a primarily quantitative study, could not? Well, first and foremost, I wanted to know what these organizations were doing on a on a regular basis, uh, exactly what kinds of activities they were in, they were involved in, um, and who was participating and and how, um, and you know, the the existing work, with the exception of the Rody and Sinclair uh, uh, books that I mentioned earlier, just really didn't tell us much about that. Uh, there there really wasn't a good answer to that question in the literature. So I was looking at things like um, minutes of meetings, uh, agendas for meetings, uh, people's schedules. Um, 
trying to, to kind of see see what was happening. And I was able to see, for instance, I was able to track in the in the case of the Democratic Steering and Policy Committee uh, agendas and and uh, and minutes over uh, over many years, seeing that that, the, that those meetings in the late 70s and the early 1980s usually involved a substantial strategic and policy uh, component and discussion where the rank and file were talking with committee leaders and with leadership and getting on the same page. And that there was a dramatic fall off in in that by the late 1980s, by about the time that uh, that Wright became speaker, where that that uh, steering and policy committee became almost exclusively at that time concerned with committee assignments and, and virtually nothing else. And so by by looking at, at what was going on within these documents, I was able to, to see uh, to, to see what they were doing uh, in a way that the, the literature had not previously revealed. There were also just, you know, as I was mentioning before, unexpected finds. In addition to those, those uh, the big story that I was looking for, there were unexpected finds. There were um, you know, memos in some cases outlining exactly how the organizations had uh, had had operated in order to achieve a particular outcome. Uh, a lot of that kind of thing in the uh, in the O'Neill papers. Um, I found a uh, a file that was practically the holy grail for me in the uh, in the Foley papers that was an extensive analysis that uh, the Democrats had conducted of their own whip organization in the 100th Congress to uh, to quantify how well each of the 80 odd whips were doing as whips and and uh, and how the whip organization had done overall in uh, in doing its its whip work. Um, I found memos that uh, from staff to to leaders and from leaders back to staff discussing what they were doing and why they were going to do it. Um, and uh, some of those even talked about how the leader's own goals uh, related to, to uh, why they were making the choices they were making. So, uh, so it was fun to find not only the kinds of things that I went to look for, but also uh, those serendipitous moments of, of stumbling upon things that I never expected to find. Now, what does this all have to do with polarization? Um, we, we've all heard of the increasing polarization of Congress. Do these uh, new leadership strategies that emerge that, that seem to focus on on loyalty and discipline does this relate at all to to polarization and if so if so how I think it does right I think polarization is a is a key part of this story that uh, that what we're seeing in in the story I was I was telling a few minutes ago uh, through the late 1980s early 1990s and beyond uh, with increasing polarization and cohesion and electoral competition um, is as congressional scholars have often said, an uh, uh, increasing willingness of the rank, rank and file to delegate authority to the top leadership and to let them take more control. Um, and congressional scholars have had a lot to say about how that works uh, in things like the operation of the Rules Committee to control the agenda on the floor, right? That's a very familiar element of how, how polarization has worked and has manifested itself in Congress. What I think I'm able to show in the book is that beyond that kind of basic agenda control that is the the keystone of, of party power, where if we look at the day-to-day operation of the party as a, as a set of organizational structures, we can also see how that, that tightening of, of top leadership control um, narrows, narrowed the scope of participation, changed the way that the party um, communicates internally, um, and, and in a way that advantages for a time, or at least did seem to advantage for a time, uh, the leadership and the rank and file, right? The leadership gets uh, a more loyal whip organization that it can rely on uh, more confidently, and and the rank and file get their greater connections to this strengthened party that has more power to reward them, right? And so you know, there are benefits on both sides to that manifestation of polarization within the congressional parties. 
But there's also to add answer a question that I guess you didn't ask, right? There's also a, a trade-off here, um, which I think we've begun to see in, in the, the last few Congresses for Republicans, where that very tight control of the party as organization um, makes it a little bit more difficult for the leadership to maintain close close connections and close relationships with uh, with all the corners of, of a conference that begins, uh, that begins to fracture. Um, and it, it also should be troubling in a, in a certain way, if I can be a little bit normative about it, in that as the party has become more, uh, as the party has become more of the center of policymaking, um, in the house, you have the party sort of weakening its own internal structures like the policy committees that had played an important role in, uh, in sort of the, the competence of the parties, uh, in the policy realm. Um, and, uh, and that I find a little bit troubling about the story that I, that I told. Yeah, the, the book again is Leadership Organizations in the House of Representatives, Party Participation and Partisan Politics. The book is published by the University of Michigan Press. Scott Mank, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Heath.